Well, good morning, Hellos Church. My name is Andrew, and I serve as one of the pastors here. I have the privilege of leading us through our study of the scriptures today. So if you have a Bible, let me encourage you to grab one wherever you're located currently and, and find your way to Acts chapter 20. Find your way to the passage of scriptures that was read for us a moment ago, Acts chapter 20, as we continue our journey through the book of Acts under a series titled Movement. The book of Acts chronicles the birth of the church in the world and how the gospel moved throughout the world during the first several decades of the church's existence. And this movement of the gospel that is intended by God to penetrate every people group on the planet is one we are very much a part of. We exist in the city of Seattle to, as a part of this gospel movement. We're filled with the Holy Spirit so that we might declare the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, that we may testify to the gospel of God's grace. Specifically, we like to say that we exist in our city to help people discover the difference Jesus makes in all of life, to lead people to find life and joy and freedom and security and identity in Christ. That's our calling that's our commissioning now the passage of scripture that we're going to step into here in acts chapter 20 is a unique passage in all of the book of acts as you may know the book of acts contains lots of public speeches or sermons there are lots of of passages that are speeches or sermons that the apostles delivered in public and even non-apostles like stephen who once delivered a sermon in acts chapter 7 and 8 But today is a unique speech because it is a speech given by the Apostle Paul that addresses elders or servant leaders from the church at Ephesus. This is the only speech, the only sermon in the book of Acts that that addresses Christians entirely. And it is a speech that deals with leadership in the life of the church. And for us as a faith family, this passage could not come to us at a better time. This past week, we presented to you candidates for eldership in the life of the church, three new qualified disciples who are being presented to you for your assessment and your approval to become servant leaders in our faith family. David Peck from our, from our Edmonds expression, Kyle Peter and Peters and John Moore from our West Seattle expression. And these candidates have been presented to you and will now undergo a 30-day assessment by you to affirm or even object to their qualifications to be servant leaders in the life of the church. As you know, elders are responsible for caring for the doctrinal health of our church, helping us stay committed to gospel realities and biblical truths. Elders are given to the church to help equip us to do the works of the ministry, to represent Jesus wherever we live, work, learn, or play. Elders are given to our faith family to help shepherd us and to guide us spiritually as we, as we journey through this life together. And so elders carry an incredibly significant responsibility in the kingdom of God and in the life of every single local church. And this is why I'm really pleased to be stepping into this passage because this passage helps us see some of what God expects of us as leaders in the church. But not only does this passage help us discover what God expects of us who are leading in the life of the church, whether that be uh, specifically as elders, but this passage helps us see some of what God expects of everyone who is leading out in the kingdom of God in discernible ways, whether that leadership takes place in the home or at work, whether that leadership takes place in a social circle or in a classroom setting, whatever the case may be. 
As followers of Jesus, we've been commissioned by Jesus to make disciples. And in order to make disciples, we are to exercise and exert levels of leadership that encourage people towards the reality of Jesus so that they may find themselves living not only in relationship with Jesus, but by carrying out the way of Jesus as they journey through this world. And so in that sense, there are the aspects of leadership that pop up in this passage apply to every one of us. They apply squarely to those who are currently servant leaders in the life of our church and the three candidates that we've presented to you as as nominations to become elders in our church. But this passage also applies to every disciple who is bearing witness to the gospel of God's grace, who's exerting gospel influence wherever they live, work, learn, or play. And so what I want to do is just look at this passage and identify seven traits of of what might be called gritty and graceful leadership. Seven traits that we want to embody as we lead people towards Jesus and as we lead people towards kingdom gospel realities. And so the first trait that I want you to think about is the trait of, of observability, meaning leaders should be observable. Those who are exerting influence in our lives should be observed by us. They should be seen by us. They should be interacted with personally by us. This is what Paul points out in verse 18. He says, when they came to him, he said to them, that is referring to the elders of the church of Ephesus who met with him in a place called Miletus. They had a meeting there and, and Paul's basically saying bye to them as he's en route to Jerusalem and he knows he will not see them again in this life. And, and so he's providing this speech to them to help them carry the baton of leadership in the church. And the first thing he reminds them of in verse 13 is observability. He says, you know from the first day I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time. Meaning his leadership took place in the context of real relationships where he knew people and people knew him. Leaders should be observable. Those we are leading, those we are influencing should be able to observe our lives and see if what we are speaking with our mouths is being embodied in our lives. Is there harmony between what we say and what we do? In order to discern that, leaders must be observable. This is why every elder in the life of our church is accessible and available to every member of our church. This is why we love having a plurality of elders, more servant leaders who can be in relationship with our growing church and be observed by them and seen by them and known by them. Because leadership should be observable. We want people to see the integrity of our lives. But to do that, we can't lead from afar. We can't lead from an ivory tower. We need to lead in the grit and the grime of daily, ordinary life. And so leadership should be available. So whoever you are leading, whoever you are influencing towards gospel realities, Don't just lead them from afar, but be with them. Engage in real relationships where they can see the integrity between what you say, what you believe, and how you live, that they might be able to discern the difference Jesus makes in every area of your life. They can discern that because they are seeing it as you are being observed. But not only do leaders 
need to be observable. Leaders need to be humble. He goes on in verse 19 to remind them that he served the Lord with all humility. He served the Lord with all humility. This trait, this characteristic that was incredibly clear in Jesus' life and leadership as he journeyed through this world. Humility was a unique feature of Jesus' life and ministry, unlike anything anyone had ever seen or observed so to be exercised so willingly in someone's life. In the ancient world, humility was not considered a virtue, it was considered a vice. Humility was associated with weakness, with softness. Humility was not desired. What people wanted from leaders was power and strength, glory and glamour and glitz. That's what people looked for when they sought leadership. But Jesus stepped into the world and he said, I've come to you meek and lowly, gentle of heart. I have come in humility, not to be served by you. I'm stepping into the world to serve you. That's humility. Humility is that virtue. It's that trait where we Stop thinking we are in any way superior to anyone else around us. It's that trait, it's that virtue that also says we are not inferior to anyone around us. We are humble. We, are, we know our place in this world. And, and so we live our lives before God and we live our lives before others, never considering ourselves better than anyone or beneath anyone. Instead, we are gladly serving everyone because in doing that, We are serving the Lord Jesus. And so humility was a virtue that Jesus embodied and it was a leadership virtue that Paul embodied and it is one that we want to embody as well. We do not think just because we are leaders that we are in any way better than anybody else. And at the same time, if our leadership isn't as glamorous as someone else's leadership, we do not draw the conclusion that we are, for some sinful reason, inferior to them. Instead, we stand shoulder to shoulder with every human being created in the image of God, with every human being loved by God who sent Jesus into the world to live and to die and to rise again. We look every person in the eye. We look down on no one. We do not necessarily look up to anyone. We just look into the eyes of everyone as we serve the Lord with humility. But not only do you find humility in this passage, you find durability in verse 19. Leaders should be observable. They should be humble, but they should also be durable because leadership is hard. And we are cued into the difficulties Paul faced in verse 19. He says, he served the Lord with all humility, with tears, and during the trials that came to him through the plots of the Jews. If you've never cried, you've never led. Leadership is always accompanied by tears because leadership is hard. The Apostle Paul knew this firsthand as he faced various types of criticisms coming to him from those who, exp- who conspired against him, those who did not believe he was an effective leader or a great speaker or this, that, or the other. He was critiqued. He was conspired against. He endured many challenges as he led out in the kingdom of God. But what I love about Paul is that he, was never, he never gave up. He showcased a durability that is, I worry, lacking in many leaders' lives in the church today. I worry that leadership in the church today often values image 
and performance and appearance over depth and durability of character. I think the reason for this is that many leaders wrap their identities up in the way that they are exerting influence. We call ourselves pastors. We call ourselves CEOs. We call ourselves teachers. We, we define ourselves by what we do. And, and as we define ourselves by the roles we are playing in the world, we, we then start drawing, finding our identity in those things. But as followers of Jesus, our identity is found in Christ alone. And until our identity is secured there, we will not be able to handle any challenge, any critique, any struggle in the various areas of leadership that we may we may be in right now. See, durability is a product of a firm identity. And as followers of Jesus, our identity is fixed, it is secure, it is granted to us by grace, it is not achieved or attained by us through what we do or how well we do it. Instead, it's just given, it's declared. And so more than a pastor and more than a leader, we must see ourselves as as sons and daughters of God as servants of the Lord Jesus. And when we find our identity in relationship with Jesus, that's when we're going to be able to endure much. That's when durability will be shored up in our lives and it will become a more consistent trait of our leadership in this life. But not only should leaders be observable and humble and durable, leaders should be truthful. I love this about Paul's leadership in verse 20. He said, you know, I did not avoid proclaiming to you anything that was profitable or from teaching you publicly and from house to house. He's saying, everywhere I went, whether it was in a public setting and I was preaching and teaching or I was visiting house to house in more private controlled settings, I taught the same message. I spoke the same truths and I did not hesitate to declare gospel realities no matter where I was and he did not hesitate no matter who he was talking to. He says in verse 21, I testified to both Jews and Greeks about repentance. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus. He told everyone that Jesus is Lord. He called everyone to repent and to believe the gospel. He did not hesitate. He did not shrink back. He was truthful. You drop down to verse 25, verse 26. He says, therefore I declare declare to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all of you because I did not avoid declaring to you the whole plan of God. He said everything that God said about everything. He taught the whole counsel of God. He declared God's saving plans and purposes in Jesus. And so Paul was truthful in his leadership. He spoke the truth. In a truthful words, when we think about the gospel, the words that consist of both hope and words that contain warnings. I think as followers of Jesus, the the average Christian is really far more comfortable delivering words of hope to people than words of warning. But I would encourage you to take some time and sit down with this passage and meditate upon the emphasis on warning that is found in this text. There's a hard accent that falls there because I think our hearts instinctively gravitate towards words of hope And if we can help it, we want to avoid delivering words of warning. But but Paul did not do this. And verse 26 is a very sobering verse. Paul declares that he is innocent of the blood of all the Ephesian elders and of the church 
at Ephesus. Now, what he is saying there is a quotation from Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 8. In Ezekiel chapter 33, this is what we read. If I say to the wicked, wicked one, you will surely die, but you do not speak out to warn him about this, his way, that wicked person will die for his iniquity, yet I will hold you responsible for his blood. And what's going on in that text is a relationship between the watchmen of Israel and the armies of Israel. The watchman had this, or the, the illustration or the analogy that's present in that text is between the watchmen and the armies of Israel. Now, watchmen were those who sat on the walls and they were lookout and they paid attention to see if any enemies were approaching the people of Israel ready to attack. And if they saw anyone coming, they were to declare it. They were to announce the arrival of the enemy so that the armies could prep, them, prep themselves and be ready to defend themselves. If a watchman failed his duty and the, and the city was conquered, those watchmen were accountable for that. Well, the prophet Ezekiel is drawing an analogy to spiritual realities. He's saying, look, if you don't warn wicked people of their wicked ways, if you're not in warning people to repent and believe the gospel and warning people about what happens if we don't, the prophet Ezekiel says, then we're responsible for their blood, for their loss of life, for the tragedy that will be their end. Well, Paul here is reminding the Ephesian elders that he didn't shrink back from issuing warnings. And he's innocent of their blood because he declared the gospel to them. He announced the beauty of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. He declared the wonder of Jesus' ascension and his reign and his rule and all that that entails. And because he issued both words of hope and warning, he had a peaceful conscience. He could go to bed that night and rest easy. Not because he's not burdened by people who were rejecting the gospel or disbelieving the gospel. That certainly bothered Paul. There are numerous passages in the New Testament where Paul's referring to the tears he's shedding over those who are rejecting the gospel. He's so burdened by their unbelief, but he was at peace with how well and how faithfully he delivered the gospel, both in its hopeful words and, its, and in its words of warning. There's a British evangelist by the name of Rico Tice. And Rico Tice said one time, loving people means warning people. If you love people, you're going to warn them. He tells a story about how he visited a friend in Australia and he and his friend decided to go to the beach. And once they got to the beach, Rico wanted to, to swim. And so he began to take off his shirt and move towards the waters. But his friend looked at him and said, what are you doing? He replied, I'm going for a swim. And his friend pointed to a sign on the beach and he said, what about these signs? Rico looked at the sign and he read the words, danger, sharks. <laughs> Rico wasn't ready to heed that warning. Instead he, said, instead, he said, don't be ridiculous, I'll be fine. But his friend then said this, listen, mate, 200 Australians have died in shark attacks. You've got to decide whether those shark signs are there to save you or to ruin your fun. Well, as followers of Jesus, as we're reading about God's plans and purposes in the scripture, as we're studying the Bible and teaching the Bible, as we're sharing the gospel, we must resolve within us whether or not God's words of warnings are designed to save us or just spoil our fun. Obviously, his words of warning are designed to save us, to rescue us, 
to draw us to Jesus. And if that's what they're designed to do, then that's how we should deliver them. Words of warning are for the good of those we love, for those that we are leading, for those that we are wanting to see cross the finish line of faith, believing the gospel and trusting in Jesus. I remember having a conversation with a guy one time who kept asking me what I was preaching on uh, in advance of every Sunday, and, and I couldn't figure out why he was so insistent upon me telling him what I would preach on, and, and it turned out that he wanted to know if he could invite a friend of his. And so if the sermon content included anything related to sin or, or hell or the exclusivity of the gospel or the lordship of Jesus, he, he wouldn't extend the invitation to his friend. He, he didn't want his friend to be exposed to kind of to, to those truths. But we began to have a conversation and as I discovered that was his motivation and he was trying to micromanage this person's hearing of the gospel, I, I pointed out this passage and I encouraged him to reconsider his approach because his approach wasn't very truthful. That he was being dishonest to his friend by trying to micromanage the aspects of the gospel that he heard trying to protect him from the hard words of the gospel or the hard realities of Jesus. And, and I told him, look, you are not loving your friend. You are not loving him. You are not being truthful with him. So I, I encourage you to repent and to find a better way of leading, find a better way of influencing, find a better way of loving another human being. Leaders are observable. Leaders are humble. Leaders are durable. Leaders are truthful. But then Paul goes on in verse 24 and we find that leaders should be faithful. In verse 24, Paul refers to his own journey. And he says, uh, the one thing I want to do, my purpose is to finish my course in the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. He wanted to complete his calling. He wanted to run his race to the very end. He wanted to remain faithful to the gospel that had been given to him, faithful to the life that he had been given in Christ. And so his one ambition, his one passage, uh, passion was to be faithful in all of his ministry endeavors. There's a woman by the name of Angela Lee Duckworth, she's a psychologist and a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. She's most famous for her research analysis of uh, some intangible traits that are found in successful people. Specifically, she's famous for uh, her understanding of grit. Her research started when she was observing students uh, who were getting their education and she was trying to figure out why some succeeded and others didn't. And she became convinced that it wasn't entirely tied to IQ. In fact, she said that a person's IQ has li had little to do with how much success they found in academics and in life on the whole. And so she began to explore that further. Well, what is it? If it's not their gifts, if it's not their talents, if it's not their abilities, then what attributes to their success? And as she began to study and research, she discovered, well, the, the one trait that's consistent in those who are successful, those who make it, is grit. And she would define grit as passion and perseverance to achieve long-term goals. Grit is passion and perseverance to achieve long-term goals. Paul was a man of grit. Paul was a man who had a long-term goal. He wanted to finish his race faithfully. 
He was gritty, so he had passion and perseverance. He was gritty, so he succeeded in being faithful to the very end of his days. You know, life and leadership is both a gift and a calling. Life and leadership is both a gift and a calling. And with this gift comes the calling and responsibility of stewarding the lives that we're leading well and stewarding the leadership and the influence that we have in the lives of others. We want to steward all things, recognizing that our lives are not our own. Our lives belong to King Jesus, and so our lives are to be lived, and our leadership is to be exercised in relationship with all that Jesus is about, so that when we come to the end of our days and we, we breathe our last breath in this world and and we open our eyes in the presence of King Jesus, we may hear from him, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what faithful disciples hear in the end of all things. This is why we want to steward our lives and our calling well. We want to have the long view in mind so that we remain faithful in all that we are doing that we may finish our course and not pull up short of the goal line. Faithfulness is our desire. Faithfulness is what is needed in leadership. But not only do we need leaders who are faithful, we need to see that leaders should be accountable. Leaders should be accountable. When you pick up verse 28, Paul says, be on guard, and he mentions two things, for yourselves and for all the flock, that is, for the church, the church of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers if you are an elder or even the church that you are a part of if you are a member of a faith family. He's saying leadership should be accountable for how they conduct themselves. Be on guard for yourselves. This is very similar to what Paul would tell Timothy when Timothy becomes a pastor at the church at Ephesus. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, Paul says, pay close attention to your life and to your teaching Persevere in these things, for in doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. He's saying, as a leader, you are accountable for the life that you lead and the teaching that you deliver. And so leaders should be accountable. On one hand, we are accountable for our pursuit of holiness. Living in America, we are prone to believe that talents and abilities and competencies are far more important than holiness, character, and intimacy with Jesus. But in the kingdom of God, it is character, holiness, and intimate with, intimacy with Jesus that carries a leader a lot further than talents and abilities and competencies. This is why a guy by the name of Robert Murray McShane, McShane once said, a Scottish pastor who died at a very young age, but he was an incredible pastor. He said, well, my, people, my people's greatest need is my own personal holiness. Now, of course, that's a bit of an exaggeration. His people's greatest need was, was Jesus, and he was aware of that, but you understand the spirit of his words. My people's greatest need is my own personal holiness. I mean, I'm accountable for being a person who is pursuing holiness, who is representing Jesus and Jesus' character to all the people that I come in contact with. And so we're accountable for our personal holiness. We're accountable for the life that we lead. And so we want to pursue Christ's likeness. We want to pursue the virtues 
of Jesus in our lives, cultivating them. But not only are we accountable for how we live and the holiness that, that we embody, we are also accountable for how well we protect the flock, how well we serve the church. He goes on to issue a warning. He says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. He says, men will rise up even from your own number and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for three years, I never stopped warning each of you with tears. So this accountability relates not only to the lives that we lead, but also to the way in which we protect the church, that we guard the church, specifically the way that we protect the flock from wolves. Paul is saying it is not uncommon for wolves to rise up within churches, for people to try to prey on those who are vulnerable, for people who are salivating for power and influence to try to manipulate their way in the church to attain it, damaging people along the way. Leaders in the life of the church are not predators, we are protectors. We do not prey on anyone, we protect everyone by holding out the truth of the gospel, contending for biblical teaching in all of life, contending for gospel realities in everything that we say and teach and do. We are to protect the church. And rest assured, if you are an elder, a servant leader in the life of the church, you will be held accountable for how well you do that. Hebrews chapter 13 makes that very clear. And so we want to be on guard. We want to guard our lives, our hearts, our personal holiness. And we want to guard the church. A leader in the life of the church must be willing to knock out the teeth of wolves. To knock their teeth out so they can't bite anyone. And that's what we must commit to do as elders and servant leaders in the life of the church. Protecting the church from those who want to prey on people and are predators in the church. We want to protect and guard against that. So there's accountability that comes with leadership that needs to keep us sober-minded and keep our eyes wide open so that we are alert and awake and attentive to what's going on around us at all times. Leadership is a heavy responsibility because leaders are accountable, but not only are they accountable, what I love towards the end of this text is that leaders should be principled. Leaders should be principled. We should be people of conviction. Leaders should not be like the tin man and the Wizard of Oz who lack a heart. They're empty on the inside. No, leaders are principled. Leaders are held together by core principles and convictions that they carry out in their lives, that carry out in their leadership, so that they can be leaders who lead with integrity. This was Paul's example. He was a principled leader. He had heard the words of Jesus and he took them into his life and sought to live by them. So when he was serving in Ephesus, he, he asserts in verse 33, I wasn't covetous of anyone else's silver or gold or clothing. In fact, I worked with my own hands to support myself because I knew the church there couldn't support me for a while. And so I showed, I, I try not to be a burden on anyone. And then he goes on to verse to the end of verse 35, he remembered the words of the Lord Jesus, the principle that it is more blessed to give than to receive. 
principled leadership. Leadership that takes in the teachings of Jesus and actually carries them out through thick and thin, even if carrying those teachings out make it more difficult on the leader. No, we want to be people who have chests, people who have hearts, principled leaders. The reality of this dynamic is that Jesus believed it's better to give than to receive, and we know that Jesus embodied that because he constantly gave more than he took. And as we seek to lead others towards gospel realities, we want to be people who are giving more than we're taking. We want to give more than we take in our marriages. We want to give more than we take in our parenting. We want to give more than we take in our friendships. We want to give more than we take when we seek to serve the city of Seattle. Believing it is more blessed to give than to receive. We want the principles of Jesus to to be operative in our leadership. And this is certainly how Jesus lived and led. I can't help but think of the night before he was arrested. And you might think that if you are going to die tomorrow, then you're going to make today all about you. Well, Jesus knew that he was about to die and the night before his death would come, he did not make it all about him. Instead, he took the time to give more than he took. He he took out a basin and he sat his disciples around the room who were sitting there with dirty feet and he began to move one by one, washing and cleaning the feet of his disciples, giving more than than he would take. Jesus constantly did that. And as those who have been washed by Jesus, who've been cleansed by Jesus, who've been saved by Jesus, we know that Jesus is always giving us more than he is taking from us. He's constantly giving us love and attention and care. He's constantly giving us forgiveness and mercy and grace. We've been given far more than we can ever take from him. And when we as leaders find ourselves being served by the greatest leader in that way, you know what that does? That frees us up to give more than we take from those around us. Jesus is filling us up so that we can constantly pour ourselves out in love and service of those that we are leading. This is why we want to be people who are constantly sitting before Jesus drawing life from Jesus, being served by Jesus so that we might stand and and go and lead and live and serve out of the overflow of what Jesus is doing in us. And of course, all the things that we're seeing, these seven principles of leadership that I wanted to put before you today, that leaders should be observable, humble, durable, truthful, faithful, accountable, principled, The only way you and I stand a chance in leading, in embodying these traits in our leadership is if we are right now being led by Jesus. All of these traits speak to how Jesus led when he lived his life and died his death. and All of these traits speak to how Jesus continues to lead us as we walk with him through this world. You know that Jesus was observable that he did not lead from afar, he did not rule from heaven, but he stepped into this world and he lived the life that we could not live and he was observed by people who saw the things that he did and heard the words that he spoke, that Jesus was observable. 
So observable that when he stepped into his highest moment in the Mount of Transfiguration, he brought Peter, James, and John with him so that they might see him in that moment of glory. But at the same time, when he went into the Garden of Gethsemane, what did he do? He brought Peter, James, and John with him so that they might see him when he hit a low point. He was observable in both his highs and his lows. That's good leadership. But not only was Jesus observable, Jesus was humble. For you know that he came not to be served, but to serve by giving his life as a ransom for many. You know that Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus did not think himself too high to die on the cross for sinners like you and me. That's humility. But not only was Jesus humble, he was durable. It was, for the, it was the joy that was set before him that enabled him to endure the cross, despising its shame and take his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. It was the joy of knowing that one day heaven will be populated by people from every nation, tribe, and tongue who are trusting the gospel and believing in Jesus. That enabled him to endure much as he was durable in his leadership. Jesus was too truthful. Every, every word he spoke was a true word. And if you listen to his teachings in the gospel, he's providing words of hope and warning all at the same time. This is the one who would say about himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He told that truth. But not only was Jesus truthful, he was faithful. In John chapter 17, we are given a prayer that Jesus prays before he is crucified and before he is betrayed and arrested and tried and crucified. And in this prayer, he points out, talking to his father, I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. I have been faithful to do everything the father gave me to do. Jesus was faithful. And his faithfulness was, is affirmed Three days after his crucifixion, when the father would look at him and say, well done, good and faithful servant, arise. And Jesus would be resurrected. The greatest testimony to his faithfulness that the father was pleased with the life that he lived and the death that he died. So he rose from the grave, victorious over sin, Satan, and death. Jesus was accountable In that same prayer, he would make this statement to the father, while I was with them, referring to his disciples, I was protecting them by your name that you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them is lost. Jesus took accountability for how well he preserved his people then and how well he will preserve his people for all of eternity. Jesus was accountable. And lastly, Jesus was principled. Jesus had a heart. He had a chest. And his principles carried him through this life so that, when he, so that he would give his life for sinners like you and me, for people who have not been very principled, for people who have not always had a heart or had a chest to be who God has called us to be and to, and to do what God has called us to do. Jesus went to the cross to die for us. And now he is gracefully persevering with us. He is gracefully passionate about us to lead us towards the long-term goal of crossing the finish line, coming to the end of our days and and enabling us to be at peace with what God will declare about us. Well done, good and faithful servants. That we would be able to say with Paul at the end of our days that we finished our course. We bore witness 
to the gospel of God's grace. That's what we want to be able to say when all is said and done, and that's what following Jesus will lead us to, because that's exactly where Jesus leads us. And as we are following Jesus in that direction, we are asking more and more people to follow us in that direction. Paul would make this statement elsewhere when he tells the church, I want you to imitate me as I'm imitating Christ. I want you to follow me as I follow Jesus. And that's what we say to the members of our church. That's what we say to our kids in our homes. That's what we say to our friends, our spouses. That's what we say to everyone. Follow us as we follow the Savior. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the leadership of the Savior. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his life and his death and his resurrection. We thank you for the hope that we have in him. Father, I pray that you would energize our leadership, that you would give us grit and grace as we seek to lead those around us. I wanna pray specifically for the elders of our church. Would you enable them to be faithful stewards of that responsibility? That they would lead in a way that that is reminiscent of Jesus' leadership. That they would be tangible representations of how Jesus leads his people. Father, be with every member of our church who's leading in various areas of life. Would you energize them and enable them to, to lead well? And I pray that they would lead people towards gospel realities that all of us would be able to say, follow us as we follow Christ. God, would you bless leadership in the life of our church? Would you allow us to grow as leaders and to develop more leaders for every area of life, all for the glory of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray, amen.